Well, as I open up today, it's a bit of an interesting start to where we're headed. Because most weeks when I step up to preach, I like to have this introduction to the sermon that's like an anecdote or some sort of illustration or story, something that's sort of an on-ramp, you know, that, that transitions us almost from the moments we've been having in singing and in prayers to the sermon, but that gives some sort of common experience, whether you're a believer in Jesus or you're not a believer in Jesus, um, something where we can all recognize, oh yeah, I, I have a common experience of that or I can relate to that. And then to say, well, just like that common experience we all share, this is exactly what the scriptures are going to speak to today. Something that would grab attention, something that would hold you, something that would say, what we're talking about in scripture is understandable, no matter who you are, and it's completely connected to your life. Now you're thinking, why is he giving me an introduction to a sermon about sermon introductions, right? I'm doing that because that's how I like to begin most sermons. That's how I like to begin most Sundays. But then I come up to a passage like we're looking at today, and there's not an introduction that works, Like what we're about to talk about today, I don't have a story that's like that. I don't have an illustration that fits this. In fact, I actually brought together a team of people in our downtown congregation to say, hey guys, I've got this text this week. Here's what it's about. Here's where it's going. Here's what happens. I'm struggling with an introduction. Can you guys help me? And they all looked at me going, good luck with that. I don't know how to help you with that. And so I just thought, here's what I'll do for my sermon introduction. I'll kind of just tell people what I normally like to do and say, it won't work with this passage because there's nothing like this passage. If you've been with us through the book of Job, you know that we've been waiting for the passage that we're gonna jump into today. This book of Job is loaded with tension. It's loaded with agony, a hurricane of suffering nails into this brother's life. He's trying to figure out what's happened, why it's happened, where is God? On the one hand, he asks the question, God, why? In chapter three, he gives this lament and six times he's asking why, why, why? It's a question that we've asked, right? In the midst of loss and grief and depression, anxiety, God, why? It's a question interesting that assumes God is there. But then simultaneously, he asks the question, God, where are you? So on the one hand, he's asking God why, assuming he's there. On the other hand, he's asking God where, assuming maybe he's not there. And he's grappling with faith and experience. That's what's happened through 37 chapters of this book. Through 37 chapters, God why, God where. And then chapter 38, this passage we're gonna look at today to suspend a little bit more um, tension in the room this passage is so beautiful. Its, its tone is so wonderful. Even its literary construction is so astounding that I'm not trying to be over-spiritual when I say this, that when I laid my hands on this to, to prepare it a couple of weeks ago, there were moments in my office where I had, to, I had to like put the Bible down because it felt too wonderful for me. There were moments where I just said, God, I don't know that I'm worthy to hold a word like this. This passage is remarkable. Here's what all this is pointing to. In this passage, God shows up. Like, I wish I could say that in a way that we all feel the wonder, the complexity. Like, there's that song we sing where it says, um, ponder anew what the Almighty could do if with his love he befriend thee. Just imagine again. Let your mind go there. What would it be like? What have I been longing for? Hey, God shows up. God shows up. 
Maybe you say it a different way. In this book, for 37 chapters, God why, God where, but in chapter 38, divine silence is broken. Divine silence is broken. There's something that comes in. You see, the reason that there's not an illustration like that is because nothing else is like that. Like when you encounter God, you don't walk away going, you know, it's just kind of like that moment at the coffee shop. When God shows up, you don't have a parallel because there's nothing like God. There's no one like him. No one speaks like him. No one's words go to the places that his words can go in your soul. No one can drive down to the depths of you like God. When God shows up, will you go, well, that's altogether different. It's unique. And so maybe you're here today and you're like, yeah, I've been in 37 chapters of silence in my life. We're not sure how long 37 chapters is in life of Job, but it sure felt like a long time. Maybe you're there. Today, this text suggests it won't always be that way. God shows up. We've been praying that maybe you have an encounter like Job's about to have in this book. God shows up. Maybe the closest thing, if I can try to grab for it, of what this text is like, maybe you know what it is to have anxiety and depression or loss and grief such that like you're completely fogged over and you don't know which way is up and you're just trying to figure out how to make it another day. But then, but then, maybe it's on a commute to work. Maybe it's while you're cooking dinner. Maybe it's while you're having a conversation with a friend over coffee. Maybe it's while you're taking your dog for a walk. In the midst of that fog, there are these moments where God in his common grace, the clouds break for a minute. And maybe they, maybe they descend again, but at least for a moment you had some clarity. Maybe if I can try to say there's a parallel at all, that's what this text is kind of is driving at, right? And so if you haven't been with us, let me kind of catch us all up here briefly what's happening in this book. The book of Job is all about trying to wrestle with the question, how does God govern the world? How does he do it? Some easy equations would say, well, here's how God governs the world. He judges the wicked. He punishes the wicked. But the problem with that, this book points out, is, well, then how come sometimes I see the wicked prospering? It doesn't seem like that's the way God governs the world. It seems too simplistic of an equation. Well, no, here's how God governs the world. God blesses the righteous. So if you just get on his team and you just do his thing his way, he becomes like a lucky rabbit's foot where if you just do it his way, he'll give you what you want. He blesses the righteous. Well, the problem with that equation is too often we see people who have given their whole life to Jesus, devotion to God, stripped of comforts of this world and they, they know suffering. So that equation feels too simplistic. That's actually Job's story, a man who is deeply devoted to God and a, a tidal wave of suffering nails his life. And so this book is all about what do we do with God on the dark day? And some of you would say, I would love just a dark day. What about dark years, right? This book even answers that question. What do we do with God in the dark years? When we don't know why, we don't know how, we don't know what to do. And so with that, let's jump into verse one of chapter 38. Chapter one, or ver- sorry, not chapter one, verse one of chapter 38. Verse one says this. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Then the Lord 
He answered Job, this man who's been crying out, like you maybe, crying out, tugging at his robe, speak, do something, quit sitting on your throne. I need you to stand up from your throne. Quit not doing something. I need you to do something. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Hey, hey, in this passage, we don't know what the whirlwind is. This could have been a literal physical storm that Job experienced in his land. It could have just been the haze, the fog, the whirlwind of his emotions and his agony. Here's the point. God cut through the noise. God cut through the noise, not because Job tugged long enough, not because he meant it long enough and hard enough, not because he held his mouth just right, not because he performed enough religious sacrifices in order to finally wake God up. God cut through the noise because God wanted to cut through the noise. God cut through the noise because that's what God did for the love of his servant Job and for his own glory. God initiated He wasn't manipulated by Job. He's not manipulated by you. You don't have to pray just the right prayer with enough grimace on your face to get God to listen. God cut through Job's noise. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, by the way. God speaks out of the whirlwind. Now, what's beautiful about this is this is the line in the book that we've been waiting for, isn't it? Because everyone's got an opinion about why suffering. Everyone's got an opinion Job's friends have opinions. They were wrong. Jeff talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Job's friends have opinions as to why suffering's happening. Job's got an opinion as to why things are happening. We've got an opinion as to why things are happening. But then God shows up. God shows up. The sense of this verse one is kind of like, imagine a room like this where all of us are sitting together. It's sort of a, a microcosm of humanity. And we're all meddling together, trying to figure out why things are the way they are. And people have different answers for why things in the world are the way they are. And some people have an answer of bravado. And so you hear some people meddling together anxiously. Well, here's my explanation for the world. It's hard, but this is my fight song. Take back my life song, right? (laughs) And some people have this answer to the difficulty in the world of bravado. I'm going to rise above. The rain's going to come, but I'm going to stand firm. And the answer of bravado lasts for about 10 minutes until you're weak again. And there's other people meddling together in the room trying to figure out how the world works, and they have a much fearful description. The sky is falling, and so we better do something. There's others who just have a completely sorrowful understanding of the world, and they don't know what to do with the other two groups of people, but they're all in the same room anxiously meddling And then here's what happens. The door opens and God walks into the room. The one that we've all been talking about, the one that we've all been speculating about, the one that we've all been wishing would show up, does. And he speaks for himself. He's not letting people settle for the bravado or for the sorrowful or for the fearful. When God walks into the room, just hear this, you know it to be true. When God walks into the room, everything changes, doesn't it? Everything changes. And so maybe today, this is where you are. Maybe today you're like, I'm in the whirlwind. I'm in the whirlwind. If that's you, I would just offer verse one of chapter 38 as your prayer. 
For a couple of weeks now, I've, I've been grappling with some anxiety of my own, and verse one has turned into my prayer, God, would you cut through my noise? God, would you do it? This is a prayer the scriptures offer you. But I want you to notice that God does speak up, and let's begin to track through this text. But just because God speaks up doesn't mean he says what you want him to say. <laughs> just because God speaks up doesn't mean he's going to go to the places and talk about the things you want him to talk about. Here's what's interesting about God. When he walks into the room, everything changes, but also because he's God, he sets the meeting agenda. Like he's going to determine where the conversation goes because after all, he's God, right? That's what we're going to notice here in, this, in these two chapters. Pick up with me in verse four. He starts speaking to Job's limitations. He says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely, surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk and who laid the cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. He says, Job, hey, do you know, do you know anything about the foundations of the world? It's a rhetorical question. No, God, I don't. Thank you very much. He goes on in, in verse 34, he continues the conversation. He shifts though to the skies. He says, Job, can you lift up your voice to the clouds? Can you do it? That a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. God suggests, hey Job, does lightning come to you and ask permission to do its thing? Here we are, God. Does that happen for you, Job? Or who has put wisdom in the inward parts? Or who gives understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens? Another verse is going to say, Job, are you a father to reign? No, no, God, I'm not. Thank you very much. He goes on in chapter 39, verse 1. He goes, hey, Job, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? And do you observe the calving of does? Can you number the months they fulfill? And do you know the time in which they give birth, when they crouch, when they bring forth their offspring? And they're delivered of their young. When their young ones become strong and they grow up in the open, they go out and they don't return. So he moves from the foundations of the earth to the skies and then to the animal kingdom. Hey, Job, do you know about the birthing patterns of mountain goats? No, God, I don't. I don't know about that. Now here's the tension of this. You read this and you go, hey, that's really interesting. God knows a bunch of stuff about the complexities of the world. That's true. So on the one hand, you read these, these arguments here and you go, I, I, have, I have no reply to God, neither did Job. But on the other hand, I want you to feel a bit of the tension here. Because here's a man who's in sorrow, who's in grief, who's in deep pain. And you wonder, is this, is this line of questioning actually helpful to him? Like when God shows up, right, out of the midst of his depression, is the thing that he needs to hear about is God's knowledge of the birthing patterns of mountain goats. What's God doing here? This is a man who's lost his money, he's lost his family, his body's covered in boils, his friends turned into his accusers, and is really the most important thing for him to hear about is the politeness of, li uh, of lightning to, to do its bidding. This feels like a weird conversation that when God would finally show up, he talked to him about things that feel completely arbitrary. Here's the point of what God's doing. God is shifting Job's perspective. 
The reason that he's coming out of nowhere seemingly with these conversations about the foundations of the world, the skies, and the animal kingdom is he's shifting Job's perspectives because to Job, God is small and his problems are big. And God is shifting the perspective to say, no, 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 no. It's actually the reverse. I'm doing things that you have no idea about. In fact, one of these passages is gonna say, I bring rain to uninhabited parts of the world and I care about its vegetation where people don't even live. I'm doing stuff, Job, that you have no idea about. He's suggesting I'm big, your problems come into perspective very differently in my presence. If you read these two chapters, you get a sense God is massive. But what's wild about this is even these two chapters can't contain God's size. Even these two chapters can't contain it. So it might be true, God isn't ruling the world the way you would have him. Can we be honest? God might not be ruling the world. He might not be doing all the things in the world and eradicating all the things in the world that you'd want him to do or eradicate. It certainly was true for Job. God, you're not doing everything I want you to do, but God is suggesting, make no mistake, and here this is for us, He's not absent. He might not be doing it the way you want him to, but he's not absent. He's not lazy. I need to hear that sometimes. God's not lazy. God's not negligent. It's not as though God is twiddling his thumbs unaware of things in the world. God's not negligent. Idly sitting by and just letting wicked things happen. And it's also true, this last one, God is suggesting to Job, I can't be tamed. I can't be tamed. I will not, I refuse to be put in your small box of how I must be. He's not negligent. He's not lazy. He's not absent. And he can't be tamed. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. When God shows up, the first thing he does is he reminds us of our limitations. But here's the second thing, and lean in with me here because the passage is about to go from black and white to technicolor. When God shows up, he doesn't just come as this impassable sovereign. So yes, he's asking Job all these questions that he has no answer for, but it's not as though God is indifferent to his suffering or emotionless about it. He shows up powerfully, but notice this, he shows up personally. He shows up personally. So so here's what I mean by this. There's something that we miss in our English Bibles. For 37 chapters, there's been one word used for God in this book, the Hebrew word El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. God Almighty, God out there. But then in chapter 38, the word shifts from El Shaddai to Yahweh. The word shifts to Yahweh. If you're new to the Bible, you might be thinking, what does that mean? Why is that significant? Well, here's what Yahweh is. It's the personal covenant name that God gave to his people. You think about Moses in the burning bush. Set my people free. Well, who should I tell Pharaoh sent me? And God says, I am. Yahweh is the Hebrew word. I am, meaning I am what my people need. I am who I am. I won't be adjusted, but I am what my people need. Tell them my personal covenant name is I am Yahweh. For 37 chapters, he's been 
El Shaddai, God out there. But now in chapter 38, he walks into the room and it's Yahweh, not God out there. Yahweh is the God who intervenes. Yahweh is the God who speaks into his people's lives. Yahweh is the God who isn't confused by the whirlwind. He walks in with powerful and personal presence and notice his tone. This is amazing because many of us imagine when God shows up and speaks, he must sound a certain way. This text flips that on its head. Notice verse two, he says this. So who is it that darkens counsel by words without understanding? God says, Job, are you gonna throw shade on me when you don't even understand how things work? Who throws shade? Who darkens counsel without knowledge? And so he says, so dress for action like a man and I will question you and you'll make it known to me. Now, at first reading, this passage sounds a bit confrontational. It sounds like here's what God's about to do. He's about to humiliate Job with a line of questions. He's about to put Job on blast. If you wanna take me to court, I'll take you to court, Job. Dress for action, let's do this. At first reading, that's how it sounds. But if you notice the temperature of the book, where the book is about to go in chapter 42, God restores Job. God commends Job. God is pleased with Job. At no point is God about to put Job on blast. God's proud of Job. So what's actually happening here is there's a bit of gentle irony in the book. God's speaking with a a tone more like this. Job, are you gonna question me? Hey, stand up. I got some questions for you. Let's go for a walk. That's more the tone of Yahweh. When Yahweh shows up, it's not barking orders. When Yahweh shows up, he says, hey, stand up. I've got some questions for you. And what's gonna happen in these chapters is he takes Job for a walk. You say, what do you mean? Well, remember the questions we just went through. He starts out and he says, hey, Job, what do you know about the skies? Look at the skies. Hey, what do you know about the seas? Look, look, look down there at the seas. What do you know what's going on down there? Hey, Job, look at light. Look at dark. Then he shifts and he says, hey, Job, what do you know about the birthing patterns of mountain goats? Isn't that wild? Hey, what do you know about how to feed baby ravens? And then he goes on in chapter 39 on this whole speech about ostriches. He says, Job, check out ostriches. What a crazy animal are they? They flap their wings like crazy, but they can't fly. What do you know about that, Job? And he says also this about ostriches. They bury their eggs. He, this is literally in the Bible. They bury their eggs in the ground. Don't they know a wild beast could come and step on their babies? What a crazy pattern of multiplication is that? But aren't ostriches still here with us? So even though they plant their babies in a stupid way, I take care of them. And if I take care of them, how about you, Job? He goes on to talk about, hey, what do you know about horses? I, I guess not much. I live in the ancient Near East. And then he goes on, he says, hey, what do you know about the flight patterns of hawks in winter season, how they fly south? What do you know about that? What's happening in chapter 38 and 39 is God takes Job on a walk through creation. He just keeps asking him questions, drawing him out into creation. What is God doing? When Yahweh speaks, oh, hear this. When Yahweh speaks, he's not just trying to put you in your place with limitations. When Yahweh speaks, he's taken his suffering servant, trying to lift his eyes and draw him out of himself for a moment because 38, 37 chapters worth has been entirely 
self-focused. He's drawing him out. In this passage, it's remarkable and tender because if you're a person who's walking through anxiety, if you're a person who's walking through depression and loss, you know what's happening here and it's beautiful to you. Because in the moment of darkness, you don't need more information about your darkness. You already know it. In the midst of depression, you don't need more. You don't, in the midst of depression, you don't need a pamphlet on depression. You don't need theology in that moment. The problem with theology in the midst of depression is that you have it, but it doesn't seem to be working. And you don't even need a good sermon in that moment. As much as good sermons are helpful, that's not what you need in that moment. What you need is someone to draw you out of yourself. What you need is a friend to come along, someone to show you that you have a place in the world and with God again. Listen to this. It says, but insofar as we can enable depressed people to see themselves in a new setting, to recover a place of security and belonging within the rich panorama of God's creation, we're helping them. They need to know that they too belong. Because isn't it in that place that you feel so isolated? They need to know that they too belong. And it's by enjoying the creator's handiwork that we are often beginning to feel again the touch of the creator's hand. We need to be drawn out of ourselves, and that's exactly what God's doing with Job through these questions. How tender and patient and merciful is this? You think about Jesus who is the image of the invisible God, right? When he talks about anxiety, he says to us, hey, don't be anxious about anything. In that moment in Matthew 6, Jesus doesn't go, so about anxiety, let's talk about the minutia of chemical imbalances and triggers. No, he actually does exactly what God does here. He says, hey, think about the lilies of the field. Think about the birds of the air. He goes on a walk through creation with us, just like God did here with Job. He draws us out of ourselves. He says, if God takes care of them, then how much more will God take care of you? And so I just pause here in the middle of the sermon today to say, when Yahweh shows up, let your, let your paradigm of what his voice must sound like shift. Yahweh doesn't show up with an ominous voice barking orders. Yahweh shows up with tender personal presence to take his depressed friend for a walk. What kind of majesty is that? Hey, hey, here's the final turn today. When God shows up, the capital A answer, God himself, the, all those stuff, God, why? The one who could answer the question actually shows up with questions <laughs> and not answers. That's the irony of this chapter. And we've been hitting at that the whole way through but the way that God speaks in this passage is the point of the passage. Why is God speaking this way? Well, that's the point. God doesn't play by our rules. God loves you so much. God cares for you deeply. But God is not bound to your preference on who he must be. You see that? God is not swayed by your opinions on the fact that he might be more likable if he were a different way. God is who he is, and that's exactly as we need him to be. He is who he is. He doesn't play on our terms. We must take him on his terms. He is the stability to our chaos, not the other way around, right? 
So why is he speaking this way? Peter Kreeft, philosopher, says it this way so well. He says, God will not answer Job because God is not the answer man. He's not the answerer, the responder. He is the initiator. He's the questioner. He's not second, but he's first. Remember, his name is I am, not he is. God initiates. And so taking God on his terms, understanding what God is doing here with Job, prepares us to understand what God is doing with Jesus. You see, when God sent us his son, track with this church, when God sent us his son, he didn't send us a philosophy, did he? Even though many people try to philosophize about Jesus. When God sent us his son, he didn't send us an answer. He didn't send us an airtight answer. He didn't send us a concept to think about. When God sent his son, he sent a person. He sent personal presence. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Again, Peter creeped. It's long, but it's worth it. This is why Jesus manifests his divinity so powerfully. Because he's always reversing the relationship into which his questioners try to put him. His enemies try to put him down, but he pins them down. They try to classify him, but he classifies them. They try to judge him, but he judges them. Even his friends, the disciples, they try to unveil him, understand him, reveal him, get the mystery of who he is to come out of hiding. But every encounter accomplishes the opposite. They are unveiled. They are understood. They are revealed. The mystery of who they are, who we are, has to come out of hiding when in the presence of divine light. So they ask him the question, shall we stone the adulteress? And Jesus flips it. I don't know, you cast the first stone. They ask him the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Give to God what is God's, but give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And what turns out is they were robbing both. They ask the question, so who is my neighbor? And Jesus flips it, why don't you go and be a neighbor like the good Samaritan? Whenever you try to test him, he tests you. For he is the teacher and you are the student, not vice versa. The way he speaks is the point. And so when you come before the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the living son of God, living, crucified, and raised in your place, we are the ones who are undone, aren't we? We're the ones who have to give an answer, not him. Not him. This is why Job's reply to all of this, Job responds to God and he goes, I'm a small man. I'm of small account. What am I supposed to say to you? And so Job does what all of us should do in the presence of God. He just puts his hand on his mouth. And so here's the big finish. God's questions to Job weren't simply to leave him speechless, although he was. And the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus isn't just meant to stagger you, although it does. Here's the point. When you're in front of the majesty of Yahweh, you're undone. What do you say? What do you say in the presence of God? But at the same time you're undone, he covers you with his blood in your place 
for your sin. When you're before the face of his righteousness, all of your unrighteousness is exposed. No one stands before God and pounds their chest. No one does that. But when your unrighteousness is exposed, he covers you all over again with his righteousness. And when you're in God's presence, here's the craziest thing in my experience with him. All of your infidelity to him is exposed. You've been running around like a spiritual adulterer, an idolater. You've been playing around on God. Your your infidelity is exposed. But in that moment, he covers you with his promises. Like that's what's happening here. We're exposed But then all over again, Job is covered and so are we. So in Job 38 and 39, here's what we know. When God shows up, everything changes. When God shows up, everything changes. We're faced with our limitations. We're not God and that's good news. The Almighty is tender enough to take us on a walk and draw us out. Hey, for some of you today, the right response to this sermon would be to go on a walk with God. The weather's nice enough to do that. The right response might just be say, God, I, I, need, I, need, to, I need to go on a walk with you. And then the final thing, in the thick of God's presence, what do you say? In the thick of God's presence, what do you say? Maybe nothing. Probably nothing. But maybe whenever you finally can muster a response, maybe the only thing to say is yes, Lord. Whoever you are, and whatever you say, and whatever you want to do, yes. Yes. Yes.